Thank you, worship team, and good morning. Thanks for joining us here, and thanks for joining us if you're with us online. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, looking at the last three verses of this chapter in our study. If you're using a Bibles here in the room, it's page 961. Andrew Peterson, the songwriter, has written a a great song we sing sometimes, uh, Is He Worthy? But the song begins with the words, Do you feel the world is broken? It is. It's broken in so many ways this past week. We've noticed particularly the conflict and suffering most obvious internationally in Afghanistan right now with the tragic takeover of that country by the Taliban. And so we pray for those suffering there. We pray particularly for the Christians who seem to be targeted. In our own country, we have enough conflict, concerns, and crime, of course, as well. Is the world broken? Yes, in so many ways. When God inspired Paul to write this letter to Timothy in the first century, uh, a pastor at that point, essentially, for the church in Ephesus. The world was broken then, too. They were ruled by the evil man, the emperor of Rome, Nero, who came to power by eliminating family members, having family members killed so he could ascend and maintain power He subjugated God's people, the Jews. Israel in Jerusalem chafed under the soldiers patrolling every street, soldiers from Rome. And beyond that, he particularly targeted Christians as well. The Roman historian Tacitus says that at times he would burn them as torches in his garden. The world was broken. As much persecution as there is, and the Bible addresses persecution, it's really kind of amazing that the Scriptures, New Testament, does not speak much to these specific instances, things that would have dominated our own news cycle. Instead, what the Scripture seems to be focused on is to give instructions to us, the church, about how we should function on earth. And it, you read the New Testament and you get the clear impression that the most important thing, the biggest deal to God is us, His family. What happens in Washington, D.C., what happens in Kabul is important to God. He loves, He cares, He is in control. And yet the biggest thing for God is his family. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are family. So, God inspired Paul to tell Timothy to tell his church to tell us these words. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, Paul to Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions So that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory, speaking of Christ, of course. So, church is most important to God, and he says, here's what must be most important to the church. Focus on the truth of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ. The truth of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 14 and 15, we see that God has entrusted his church with the truth, the eternal truth of his word. I'm writing these things. When he says that in verse 14, I'm writing these things. I don't think he's referring to just these couple of verses or even a couple before or a couple after. I think he's, <clears throat> this is like the theme of the entire letter. This is why he wrote all six chapters. I'm writing you all of these things as instructions about how the church should conduct themselves and what they should focus their ministry on. So uh, what we've already studied in the, the doctrine parts, the, the being thankful and the praying for government and, and that men should pray and that women should follow men's leadership in the church and the character of men who lead in the church. And now there'll be more chapters of, of how to address false teachers and, and uh, preaching and reading the scripture and taking care of widows and, and when, when elders are in sin and submitting to your boss and financial contentment and, and if, if you're blessed financially as a Christian, what to do. All this stuff is a ton of stuff about how we conduct ourselves in the church because this is the main thing God is doing on earth. I trust that you would read all six chapters of 1 Timothy sometime through this study. Just read straight through to kind of get a, an impression that this is what's important to God about the church. If you, if you sat down this afternoon to read this, it would take you about as, as long as half of a movie, okay? Just to put it in perspective, or like one TV show. Just read right through it. I'm writing you this so you know how to conduct yourselves in God's household. The word household is actually the word family. In fact, that's how a lot of Bibles translate it back in verse 5, because he's talking about elders and the father being the father of the family. Household is family. And you know that the people most important to you are your family. And it's the same for God, the people most important to him are his family. He's like any other parent in that way. So he said this, you are first of all described by this metaphor, if you will, of the, of the family. You are my family. And, and so his, this is like a purpose statement for the family, the church. When my family meets, make sure you unite around the truth of God's word and the person of Jesus. Because God is caring deeply about how his family is doing. And so when you care about your family, you know that you care individually. And so personalize this. Even put your name in verse 16. You will know how Sid or anybody else is to conduct themselves. So this is about you individually being a part of us corporately. 
I'm writing this letter to you so you know how to function as part of a family. You are not little individual islands, Christian statues out there. You are in a family. Family, the second term is church. And this then is the most common word for church in the New Testament. It's the word for assembly. It's when people actually are in the same place together. Remember school assemblies? You take, get out of all the classrooms and there you are. You're all in the gymnasium. So a church is believers in Jesus Christ who actually meet to worship Christ, to study his word, to pray and praise, care for each other. And so on a given Sunday in Ephesus, people would come down the streets like you came down streets and roads today come in from the fields and they would physically gather. That's what church means, it gathers. The biggest deal on earth to God is his church and he wants us to meet. So, do, do you prioritize God's family meetings? Do you prioritize uh, family responsibilities? chores he assigns how are your relationships with your siblings a father always cares about that for several months last year we did not meet as a family it was the first time in all of our lives that we weren't allowed to if you will did that pause ignite in you a fire that values fellowship did did it create in you a heightened appreciation because we've gradually regathered and now this fall as we're beginning to announce the we'll be able to be kind of full scale in our ministries with the kids build returning and adult bible fellowships have we learned, if you will, one of the key lessons of the season we've come through? We're a church that assembles the church, he says, of the living God. So family, household, which is the church, the assembly of the living God. Now, of course, we would express, expect God to be described as living. God's definitely living. We believe that. We think of him living in heaven. He's living in heaven. He's ruling and reigning in heaven. But this is not about him living in heaven. What is this? This is the assembly of the living God. That's on earth. Because the people of God, we who have put our faith in Christ, are assembling. We are the assembly of the living God. So where is the living God living on earth? He is living in us. Like the passage that Seth read earlier rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God lives with us, in us, among us, but we're so imperfect, we're so immature, we get selfish, we get angry, and yet God chooses to live here. 3420, Highway LL. 
Have you thought already this morning about the presence of God being here now? Right now. God is here. This isn't just a meeting about God. This is a meeting with God. And I, I trust that there are often times when you sense as we meet God speaking, maybe through his word, maybe through a, a fellow brother and sister in Christ. We should be in awe that the God who made the mountains and the great lakes is actually personally meeting with us and speaking to us. How? Through his word and because of the person of Jesus. Last Sunday, this building was empty, wasn't it? I am sorry if anybody drove up here and like, did the rapture take place? <laughs> Open door is gone, 100% gone. As we were meeting down by the band shell in Port Washington, we were still the church. It was fun, wasn't it? Wasn't it fun to be the church outdoors for a change? Because the church is not a building. The church is when we gather. It was fun. But this week I couldn't help but think of the deep contrast to the church of Afghanistan meeting in terrible persecution, perhaps certainly seeking to meet underground, maybe some risking meeting publicly. I understand that the fastest growing churches in terms of conversion are taking place in Iran and Afghanistan in the world right now. God is growing his church in suffering. God also grows his church in times of blessing. We are in a time of blessing. We as open door are, we are blessed. And so the point is not that we should feel guilty about the blessings of God. We should never feel guilty when it's God's blessings. But whatever situation God has his church or churches in, because there's one church and there's, we're, we're all the franchises. Whatever the situation is, God is always growing us and is always going to show himself strong as we unite around the very same things, the truth of God's word. In the person of Jesus, do, do we value that? So that we're, we're not troubled when we're singing songs that aren't our favorite or there's a teacher who's who we, teaching we don't prefer or we're called to love or serve people we don't necessarily agree with, but that we would just sense the magnitude of God being present with us as we unite around his word and the person of Jesus. So our right, so people will know how to conduct themselves in the household, which is the church of the living God. And he gives one more than core description of who we are. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. In chapter 1, and again now in chapter, when we get to chapter 4, we will see there is a a deep problem of false teaching. The most divisive thing that can happen to a church is false teaching. And so he says, remember, you are the pillar and foundation or buttress of the truth. So we must proclaim 
and maintain and defend the truth of God's word. Every, the, these are architectural terms, obviously, pillars in, in, in ancient buildings, especially uh, public buildings have large visible pillars. They held everything up. The second term is a very rare term. It probably refers to some of the supporting walls or buttresses more than maybe a foundation. But the point is that the strength of God's church is the truth of God's word. It's one of the reasons I really like having the word Bible in our name because it is an understanding that we are in submission to the God of the universe who has communicated to us. So this is... This is what we agree on. And this is what God has entrusted to us. I'm saddened when I read articles in Christian periodicals about why people don't attend church, some of the titles, Why I Quit Church, Six Reasons Christians Don't Attend Church. Do you realize there is basically a pandemic of unchurched Christians? Those who seem to understand and have their faith in Jesus Christ, but do not belong to, regularly attend, or meaningfully involved in a local church. And as you read some of the articles, there's kind of a long list of complaints, most of which are probably true, for reasons why people quit church. We're flawed. So if we're so flawed, how, why would God choose to still be among us? Because we're family. You don't abandon family. And because and to the extent that we unite around the truth of God's word and the person of Jesus, he, he dwells here gladly. He abides many flaws like parents do, right? Because of who we are to him. A pillar, a foundation of the truth. We unify around God's truth, not our opinions, not our ideas, not other agendas, not other preferences. There are reports this week, you may have read by some Christian organizations that the Taliban are trying to identify Christian households by the presence of Bibles or Bible apps on phones, marking them for persecution or death. If that's so, it only reinforces the fact that the spiritual battle is about God's word. This is the real battle. It's the battle there. It's the same battle for truth in our world, when you, when you see the, how, how right is called wrong and wrong is called right in our American culture. And we've seen all these shifts really the last 30, 40 years in so many ways. The spiritual battle, whether they're persecuting people for a Bible app or whether they've twisted the scripture in public policy or culture, it's all the same battle. So knowing that, do we value and cherish the treasure of God's word. We show it by our investment in the word of God. If, if someone took your Bible or outlawed Bible apps, how much is hidden in your heart, in your mind? What would you still have? 
Someone once told me they didn't go to Bible studies because the people there all know more of the Bible than I do. Think about that. That's the purpose of Bible studies, is that we would grow to know more of God's Word. We don't go there to impress each other with how much we know, and if you're in a study, make sure that that isn't on your heart, but rather you want others to know the Word of God. It's the greatest treasure on earth, and God has entrusted His greatest treasure on earth, His Word, to His greatest love on earth, His people. So we have to value time around the Word. Know it, meditate it, preserve it, defend it, teach it, memorize it. It changes life. Every other idea is either deceiving or distracting. Satan's the father of lies and he is the master of distraction. So don't let him deceive or distract you from what is actually in the Word of God. So God's Word is what the church knows. This is what we know about God. Is it possible that it could be any better than that? Perhaps it is because we actually know God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not only that we know what God is like. We know God in the person of Jesus, verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Speaking of Jesus, he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, and was seen by angels, seems to be his ministry on earth. And then from heaven was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Six lines describing Christ at the end there. Let's start at the beginning. Beyond all question, the Bible, our Bible's translations use terms like without controversy, or we all agree, or we confess. It's a term that means to say the same thing. We all agree on this. And then he describes Jesus. We all agree on Jesus. In fact, their word is there. Great is the mystery of godliness, Jesus. You actually know a Greek word. It's the word great. Mega. Mega. This is really important. The really important truth that draws the church of the living God together is the truth of Jesus Christ who he's called here who's called here the mystery of godliness last week it, it was exciting to assemble the church outdoors and i realized as looked forward to that it was the first time in these decades i've ever had a chance personally to preach a whole sermon like where anybody could walk up at any time i've never had that outdoor experience of preaching a whole sermon so as i thought about what passage i need to pray and know discern what passage to talk about but i never questioned who i should talk about it would have to be the message of jesus christ and so we end up with john 6 i am the bread of life but 
He is the core truth. The, among all the truths, He is the main truth. We, we believe in the whole counsel of God, and so we study through books of the Bible and because we need to know all of what God says about everything. But if there's a major truth among the major truths, it is that God revealed Himself to the person of Jesus. And on this, we all agree. The mystery of godliness is not a what. It's who. It's Jesus Christ. Okay, he's a mystery. In the New Testament, when you find the word mystery, it's describing some newly revealed truth. Something that was not known before Christ in the Old Testament times. In Ephesians 3, Paul describes the church as a mystery because the Old Testament believers could not have conceived of somehow God bringing Jews and Gentiles onto equal footing in the same entity or organism we know as the church. The church is a New Testament thing. Race matters not at all. That was a mystery, but here Paul calls Christ a mystery because they didn't know specifically about Jesus Christ and what his nature would be. The, the last six lines you couldn't find in the Old Testament because they didn't know all those things yet. So, why is he called the mystery of godliness? Because the new truth is that we grow godly and more Christ-like because of our connection to Christ. The Old Testament believer would know what is right and what is wrong. They had the law. They understood morality from God. And yet they didn't know the capacity that we would have today. There we go. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, those who are connected to him by faith, he is a new creation. There is something new about us. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Do you realize the capacity you have because you are personally connected to Jesus Christ? Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's like an entire new identity because Christ lives in you. And the life I now live in the flesh, and we all do, we look normal, right? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They didn't realize in the Old Testament that Christ would actually live with, that, there, that God would live within me. And so we have this capacity. The things that would otherwise seem impossible to change about ourselves now are, boom, possible. Paul would write to the Colossian church. Likewise, follow this. This, this is amazing. I have become its, the gospel's servant, by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness 
the mystery that has been kept for ages and generations, the Old Testament, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, that's us, to them God has made known, chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory or the confidence of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature, fully mature in Christ. Christ in you changes you unbelievable before Christ came so the reason that you and I know that we have glory ahead of us is because of Christ we will be in a glorious place heaven we will be with uh, the glorious God personally and we will even have a glorious body amazing and that glory is because Christ is in you speaking of our salvation but Paul says that's not all so we keep teaching admonishing him because on earth we are to become more fully mature because Christ is in us and that is glorious as well so the glory is not all just future we were saved so that our future is secure but we were saved so that our present would be transformed called sanctification sometimes or or this this growing in godliness that God had his mind how do you get there by teaching and admonishing everyone to be fully mature through Christ. You and I all need to grow up and keep growing. And so something will no doubt be happening in your life right now that's meant to grow you. We all know that there are those days where we run up against the same old stubborn sins or traits in our relationships, our thoughts, our attitudes. So how do we and can we grow up past those things? Sure. If Christ is in you, all change, all transformation is possible. Because otherwise, we'll just come to church and, and hear what is right and feel guilty and helpless. Unless we focus on our new identity in Christ, and that is that he lives within us, and now everything can be transformed. I think we've often underappreciated Jesus after we got saved. If you're a believer in Christ, you know at that moment, if you can think back to how you came to faith, you knew that it was about Jesus. You suddenly realized my own good works are not going to get me to heaven. No rituals get you to heaven. It is my faith in Christ who died for my sins and rose again. That's how I get to heaven. And it was all about Jesus. Now, I better go try to live Christianly. And we tried on our own effort. When Christ in you is the hope of glory, not only eternally, but Christ in you is the only way we have any confidence of a glorious transformation that he had in mind for us. It's also the only way we will ever bear fruit. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, if you want to have an impact in the lives of others the way God intended, you're going to have to stay really, really close in your relationship to Christ. Abide in me and you will bear a whole lot of fruit. And so he's changing our, selfless, our selfishness into selflessness. He's changing our sin into righteousness. And he changes from barrenness to fruitfulness. And so then in the last six lines, he describes how amazing Christ is 
so that we are drawn and attracted to a close relationship with Him. And we find that Jesus came from heaven to earth and then returned to heaven but continues to work on earth. These lines are in a parallel, seemingly rhythmic form. Your Bible might express that. Uh, thought to most likely be lyrics to an early Christian song, what they might have sung there in Ephesus, inspired by God. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels. These first three lines describe Jesus' life on earth, and then more from the perspective of heaven. Now what's Jesus doing? Was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. He appeared in a body. Uh, King James Version says God appeared in a body. Slightly different word in the Greek text. Very likely it's meant to be that way. In other words, God appeared in a body. Either way, the truth is the same. Jesus is God from heaven come to earth. Jesus is God in the flesh. Revealed in human form what God is like. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he came here. Why? To reveal God. No one has seen God at any time, but God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. So the, 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 the one who is intricately connected as the second person of the triune God actually left to be here. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ created everything. He created this planet here we find that he also came to this planet. Incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, flesh. Jesus is God, but God put on flesh. So he's the God-man. People sometimes, critics accuse God of ignoring suffering or doing nothing about suffering. Wait a minute. God left the perfection of heaven to come and suffer and to heal those who suffer and care for those who suffer and finally to go to the cross and suffer so that no one need suffer forever but have glory forever. He did everything to solve suffering. And so we praise him for that he became man. Second phrase, was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated or justified or, or proven to qualify. In other words, can Jesus really give the eternal life that he claims to? Yes. How do we know? Because the Spirit raised him from the dead. Romans 1.4 Who through the Spirit, the third person of the triune God, through the Spirit of holiness was appointed or proven the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. How could anyone dare doubt that Jesus could give eternal life when in fact He rose from the dead? And so in chapter 8, verse 11 of Romans, if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and He does if you're a believer, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. We gather in this room often, or every time someone among us 
dies. And we have a casket or an urn here. An important time to remember their life. But, but what is there is really not what matters. Because if they have put their, if we have put our faith in Christ, we know we have eternal life because Jesus was raised by the Spirit. And we go to be in heaven with our Lord the moment we die. Third line, a proof of Jesus' deity from his earthly life was seen by angels. That's saying more than it might appear, not just that, yeah, they saw Jesus. It's actually referring to, I think, to the fact that in his life on earth, the angels came to verify who he was. You know how if you're maybe on one of your financial sites, you have to get that verification code and you type it on your phone or whatever. Well, the angels were the verifiers at the birth, first of all. Mary, you're going to have a baby. The angel tells them, who's the son of God? At the birth, the angels were there. Joseph, the shepherds, everybody had to verify who this was because who's going to believe that a little baby born in that common manger in Bethlehem was actually anything but a baby? or the 12-year-old, or the 30-year-old man, because he looked just like any other Jewish man. Average height at the time, they say, was about five foot nine. so it's not like most of our Sunday school pictures where it's like this magnificent, four-year, taller, long-hair, striking man. He just was a Jew, a man. So the angels said, we're going to ver- God says, I'm going to send my angels to verify it. At his birth, what about at his resurrection? He died and then his body was gone. Well, that could be what? Someone took it. So the disciples arrive at the tomb and did somebody take the body? No, they, no. angels said no. He's not here because he's risen. Remember, he told you. And then when he ascended to heaven, he didn't just disappear. But he was around for a couple of weeks and then I don't know, I haven't seen him for a long time, have you? No, he visibly went up to heaven, and even if that wasn't clear enough, then God sent angels to say, why are you looking up in heaven? The same Jesus went up there, he's going to come back down for you. So God sent his angels as, as, the, as the, with verification notices at every point of his life to prove who he was. Jesus on earth was God. His life, his resurrection, the angels In the second verse of the song, if, if we're dividing it correctly, it seems to express now that, have, that he ascended to heaven. What is Jesus' ministry on earth now? He says, was preached on among the nation, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Uh, past tense, because Paul's writing this, or, or the song is being sung after Jesus is gone already for some time. This is actually 30 years uh, since Jesus was gone, back to, earth, to heaven, he was proclaimed among the nations already. Nations here is not so much political groups, or rather political kingdoms, but people groups, different kinds of people. Many, many times within a single nation, you have different people groups. We do in America, of course. So he was proclaimed. So we preach Christ, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. 
First Timothy 1.15, he came to save sinners, and then Matthew 28, so go make disciples of all nations. How can Paul say just 30 years later that Christ was already proclaimed among the nations? Very simply because Paul was the guy doing it. He had already gotten to a lot of different people groups within the Roman Empire by the time he wrote this song, of course, of course. This line of the praise song could have described simply Paul's travels. I've been everywhere, man. For those of you who remember the 60s song. While Jesus is exalted in heaven, he is being proclaimed on earth, especially, it seems, in times of persecution. And so the message of Jesus Christ is our responsibility as a church. And that's why we take our missions ministry seriously. So we have... Stouses in their second term now in Papua New Guinea. We have the Keiths really in a second season of their ministry, reaching a second people group in Paraguay. Doug and Nancy in Asia. Nikki, who actually going to be in the second service, I understand, today, uh, impacting people groups serving in an immigrant-type city near Atlanta and supporting ministries in Asia. Tim and Sis, who were here a couple weeks ago and now are starting their training to be missionaries, getting this technical training, and, and people like the Turks who are training people like Tim and Sis. It's a privilege. That's what churches do. We, we defend and maintain and teach the truth and we focus on the person of Christ because he must be preached among the nations and then the result is he is believed on in the world. If, if, if Jesus had just been another human being, another Jewish man, even given his unique life and crucifixion, but if he was just a man, would, we be, would we, anybody know about him 2,000 years later, let alone the fact that he is transforming the world one person at a time. He's believed on. Because he's the only way to be saved. For God so loved the world, all people groups. He gave his only son, Christ, on the cross. Here's the decision that whoever believes on him will not perish, hell, but have eternal life. Because salvation is found in no one else there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. That's it. So as, as Jesus is now in heaven, his impact is continuing as we proclaim, preach him among the nations. He is believed on in the world. And that is what God is watching his church do because we are the biggest deal and building his church is his main thing. And he will use anything and anyone who wants to be involved in that. The final line says, was taken up or lifted up in glory. A term that is probably describing his ascension, but is focused on where he is now. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven where he reigns forever. And so we find in Philippians, therefore God exalted him this is after describing that he came to earth obedient to death and then raised, 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a definite, absolute promise. And we can either get involved in glorifying him by our lives or not, but he will be forever glorified by everyone, whether by judgment or by salvation, he will be glorified. So, have you ever wondered what we do here? It's that we gather in agreement around God's word and the importance of the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what God is watching us do. That's what God cares about. That's why he is with us here right now. Two questions for our personal application. Think about the past week, but as you do, think about the next week, okay? Have you been immersed in God's word? Have you been immersed, immersed in what God says in his word or something else? What is, what is really absorbing, capturing our heart? And secondly, have you been in close relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you, have you uh, intentionally been in his word to develop your personal relationship with him that, that it's not an odd thing to realize God is here, God is with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We should, the, the absence of fear is only through the presence of God. And he has promised to do that for us. So his inspired instructions are immerse yourself together in truth and follow and worship Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so distracted by whatever is most important to us. And so we always need to be refocused on what you, our Father, Father of our family, remind us is most important. Thank you for your word that it is reliable, that we can have confidence when there is a flurry of ideas around us. We can have confidence of something absolutely true. And that then we as a church would focus and gather around your truth. And thank you that in our broken world you have come to solve every kind of brokenness by the person of Jesus Christ who became one of us to die for us, to guarantee us a glorious future in heaven with him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.